0: I was working that Tuesday morning and remember very graphically how it all came out.
1: I was due to start at the State Department on September 10th.
2: I am
1: oh, But my security clearance hadn't come through.
0: I was driving to a, a 9 o'clock meeting of EU ambassadors at the UN and my driver said, uh, ''There's some news coming through on the radio. A, a small plane seems to have hit one of the tires." I see midway
2: up the uh, World Trade Center tower. Heavy black smoke coming out. Also, it seems like uh, heavy, heavy
0: damage to the upper portion of the building cage. So we took note of that. He dropped me at the door. I went up to the uh, ambassadorial meeting.
2: We just had a, a plane
3: crash into the upper floor of the World Trade Center, transmit a second alarm, and start relocating companies into the area.
0: Jeremy Greenstock, a member of council at Chatham House and 10 years ago in 2001, United Nations uh, ambassador for the UK in New York.
1: I'm Zania Dormady. I'm the senior fellow for the US International Wall at Chatham House.
0: By that stage, somebody had heard that it was a large plane. So we realized that this wasn't uh, likely to be an accident, or if it was, it was a very strange accident. Uh, but we got on with the meeting.
2: This is, this is all our units to the
0: and then the news came in to the meeting that a second plane had hit the second tower, and I immediately said, uh, "Al." qaeda
2: I had flown up on the shuttle from Washington. The shuttle took off rather late that morning, so I actually found myself flying in to JFK uh, just after the first tower had been hit. curious thing was that as we flew across Manhattan, I saw the plume of black smoke, but of course I couldn't identify what it was, but it was rather puzzling. I'm David Manning on the panel of Senior Advisors at Chatham House. And at the time of 9-11, I was just uh, assuming the role of foreign policy advisor to the then Prime Minister, Tony Blair.
3: At that stage, I was working for the Economist Intelligence Unit covering India, Pakistan and Afghanistan.
4: I'm Maha Azzam, and I'm an Associate Fellow on the Middle East and North Africa Programme here at Chatterhouse. It's
0: the 1st Battalion, 300 that looked look like it was intentional... This has to be a planned operation, and the most
3: likely people to do it are al-Qaeda. I'm Gareth Price, a senior research fellow on the Asia Programme at Chatham House. I mean, we've been following Afghanistan for the last few years, and it was very clear we'd put it in a publication at the start of the year that another major terrorist attack linked to bin Laden was likely to trigger a set of events that would lead the US to invade Afghanistan... (laughs)
0: We realised we were all busy on something else that day. And as we were leaving, the news came through that the United Nations building, which we weren't in, we were in a side building, was being evacuated in case that was the next target.
3: The assumption straight away was that it was likely to be linked to Bin Laden and Al-Qaeda. Now, it's one of those assumptions that could be wrong, as we've seen in the recent attacks in Norway. People jump to the conclusion and it's not always correct.
5: It wasn't really until much later in the day that news began to filter that it had to do with um, Islamist terrorists.
3: The point about 9-11 is that just a couple of days before, Ahmad Shah Massoud, the main leader of the Northern Alliance, had been killed and that had been claimed by al-Qaeda. So the Northern Alliance was in disarray. So in that circumstance, given what, what was happening within Afghanistan, it seemed to point to the fact that a major attack outside of Afghanistan was going to be linked to al-Qaeda.
5: I had already received reports that Pakistan's ambassador to the United States and the head of Pakistan's intelligence agency, who was on a visit to the United States, uh, had been called to the State Department to answer questions, we were told, and that there had been quite a fierce exchange Because there were suggestions that Pakistan was closely involved with the Taliban and that the Taliban, of course, were harboring Osama bin Laden. What did Pakistan know about this plot? I'm Farzana Sheikh and I'm an associate fellow with the Asia program at Chatham House.
3: For the few years before, we have been following the Taliban and its relationship with al-Qaeda, and you'd seen a number of attacks, each of them big, each of them attempting to, to goad to America, uh, to go into Afghanistan. And you had the ideology within the Taliban that they'd defeated the Soviet Union, and within al-Qaeda, who saw their enemy in particular as the United States, that there was this sense of uh, t- trying to lure America into Afghanistan, you know, the graveyard of empires and, and so forth.
6: Uh, today, we've had a national tragedy. Uh, two airplanes have crashed into the World Trade Center in an apparent terrorist attack on our country.
2: I was unable to make contact by telephone with anybody. Uh,
0: my colleague David Manning, who was later ambassador in Washington, was stuck.
2: But subsequently managed to get in touch with Jeremy Greenstock at the UN
0: so I sent my driver and car out. Sent a
2: car to pick me up. To collect him up. And I then drove from New York down to Washington.
0: To continue business uh, and indeed the close correlation between Washington and London uh, and New York on the aftermath of nine eleven was started by that coincidence that there was already a senior team of officials across on the east coast doing other things who couldn't get back for several days to, who went to washington and got down to work with the americans on trying to piece together what what had happened what, what was going to happen what the consequences of this would be how this might affect and afghanistan came up very quickly in discussions there so the uk and the in the us were already within 24 hours of this happening in official contact physically, talking about the consequences.
1: My friends were really split into two camps, but predominantly it was a real sense of fear, a real sense that America had been hit at home, and from some, a real sense of we have every right to hit back as hard as we can. Anybody who's ever done anything negative towards the United States, we have a have a right to hit back.
6: I have spoken to the vice president, to the governor of New York, to the director of the FBI, and I've ordered that the full resources of the federal government uh, go to help the victims and their families, and, the, and to conduct a full-scale investigation, to hunt down and to find those folks who committed this act. Terrorism against our nation will not stand.
1: Given that I grew up in the UK, given that I grew up with the IRA with bombs going off in London, uh, to me they were falling into exactly what the terrorists want, what al-Qaeda wanted. Uh, the British generalization of stiff upper lip, the sense that uh, we won't change the way we behave, we won't change the way we think, even if people attack us, it was not something you saw in those first weeks and months in the United States, certainly not by the majority.
6: Good evening. Today, our fellow citizens, our way of life, our very freedom came under attack in a series of deliberate and deadly terrorist acts.
5: All of which, of course began to sort of accentuate worries and anxieties among Pakistanis like myself, abroad. You know, we simply couldn't understand what Pakistan could have had to do with this attack. Of course, since then, the story has evolved. I recognised very quickly
4: that it was going to be very difficult to dissociate Arab and Muslim uh, from the act, and that the implications of that for Muslim and Arab communities in the United States and elsewhere was going to be devastating and it was going to take a very long time to build up um, trust between communities and that the implications, both domestically and internationally, were going to have ramifications for a very long time.
6: These acts of mass murder were intended to frighten our nation into chaos and retreat. But they have failed. Our country is strong. A great people has been moved to defend a great nation. Terrorist attacks can shake the foundations of our biggest buildings. But they cannot touch the foundation of America. These acts shatter steel, but they cannot dent the steel of American resolve.
3: We'd seen the attack on the US embassies in Africa in 98, and then more recently than that, a a brazen attack on the USS Cole, a warship just off Yemen. They were trying to goad the United States, and the United States had responded. So after one of the attacks, it had fired missiles at training camps in Afghanistan and a pharmaceutical factory in Sudan. And clearly that wasn't having the desired effect within the United States. The pressure there was clearly that something something bigger would have to be done in this thorn in their side. And obviously the 9-11 attacks were of such a scale that the idea that the United States could just respond by a sort of token measure was clearly fanciful.
1: I don't think that there was a sense that that's what al-Qaeda wanted in response. There wasn't a sense that they anticipated that the United States would invade afghanistan there was very much a sense that that was an appropriate response that that was a necessary response and i think that that was mirrored not just in the united states but also in europe in some respects there was a strong support here in europe for american uh, boots on the ground american action in afghanistan there were very few who felt that that was not an appropriate measured response
2: Tony Blair spent a great deal of time and energy talking to other world leaders, and there were various trips which I accompanied him on, ranging from close european partners like President Chirac and Gerhard Schröder to President Putin, to uh, leaders in the Middle East, to leaders in the subcontinent.
0: Uh, We had to judge what the receptiveness was of other countries, particularly countries that were naturally hostile to what the West wanted to do at the UN, whether they would accept a resolution on nine eleven that would allow the Americans to use all necessary means to uh, deal with the attack on their sovereign territory.
2: The Blair vision was very much that this was a watershed for the international community, that we had to come together and... Uh, confront this this menace as an international community, and that's what he was trying to encourage and to promote.
0: Uh, Actually, the French got in very quickly ahead of us and drafted a resolution that was fully supportive of the Americans which was much more effective than a natural ally like the Brits doing it because it made other people realise that if the French were putting that forward, then there was a a more objective view, and this was obviously something that the the world would have to take account of. And things like this led to the observation, which I think was correct, that the Americans had an enormous amount of sympathy in the early weeks after 9-11. And
6: on behalf of the American people... I thank the many world leaders who have called to offer their condolences and assistance. America and our friends and allies join with all those who want peace and security in the world and we stand together to win the war against terrorism. I think
2: the international community became but uh, rallied behind the United States in, in a remarkable way. I've always thought that the headline in Le Monde was
6: Nous sommes tous américains, éditorial publié dans l'édition du 13 septembre 2001. Un siècle nouveau s'avance donc, technologiquement performant, comme le montre la sophistication de l'opération de guerre qui a frappé tous les symboles de l'Amérique.
2: C'était une tremendous
6: of international solidarity. So I do think uh, that that was a period of rather extraordinary international solidarity.
0: Which could have made a difference to the management of world affairs. Uh, if the Americans had understood how they could have capitalized on that wave of sympathy which eventually led to the passing of Resolution 1373, which gave the whole membership of the United Nations specific responsibilities which they were obliged to follow to deal with terrorism on their soil. A most unusual resolution, which was later, to some extent, resented for its legislative uh, power.
2: that the Americans felt that the international community was with them and I think it also delivered the international response to and support for the intervention in Afghanistan and bringing down the Taliban, installing the Karzai government and all that went with that.
1: Here was a real opportunity for the US government to reach out and engage and build cooperation build links to work together.
2: I think there was widespread support for the United States at that time, and I think the Americans knew it.
1: And the response was actually, we can go it alone. It was very independent. It was not the right message to be sending to the international community. And it was an opportunity lost both then, but even now. It would have linked the United States to Europe, to the NATO members, in a very strong way. And Action-forcing events, if you will, like that, don't come along terribly often, and we haven't had one since, and that's a real problem in terms of building those close links between the United States and the other members of NATO, particularly in Europe.
0: In New York, we passed resolutions immediately within 24 hours in the Security Council, uh, later in the General Assembly, later on uh, Afghanistan and, and the aftermath to where this came from,
6: I've directed the full resources of our intelligence and law enforcement communities to find those responsible and to bring them to justice. We will make no distinction between the terrorists who committed these acts and those who harbor them.
4: The very act managed to conjure up some degree of admiration from a minority for al-Qaeda, It was the fact that they felt that this um, occurrence was so spectacular, it undermined the idea of the United States' invincibility. And for some time, Al-Qaeda lived off that myth that it could undermine the power of the United States through such acts of violence.
3: Pakistan was largely responsible for, for the rise of the Taliban. I mean, there, were, there were two elements in, in the 90s. One was that Afghanistan was in chaos, um, run by looting and pillaging warlords. And so the Taliban bought order, which in, in the first case, if your life's at risk, that's better than, better than nothing. And the Taliban also had you know, Pakistani military support.
4: I think they went to Afghanistan because they were fighting the, the jihad against Uh, the Soviet Union initially, and that was where their base was, and that's where there was the terrain that allowed other militants to come to Afghanistan. So I think it was predicated by a history of jihad primarily against the Soviet Union, and where at one point they had also the support of the United States, let's remember.
5: It is fairly obvious now that there were Dealings that there were exchanges between leaders, particularly on the right of the political spectrum in Pakistan, and between various leaders closely allied to Osama bin Laden
3: I guess you could say that you know it 's a poorest border and it ever has been. people on all sides have crossed over. The story goes back before that uh, the fact that the United States was supporting various Mujahideen groups during the Soviet invasion and then post the Soviet invasion, very quickly the United States put sanctions on Pakistan and Pakistan kept its relationship with various elements of these Mujahideen groups, some of which then morphed into the Taliban, and so those links continued.
5: And yes, they were by all accounts seen as this this ramshackle band of half-literate Pashtuns from some of the least developed areas of uh, southern Afghanistan, around Kandahar, uh, Pakistan felt that with its sophisticated uh, military personnel, its sophisticated political leaders, they could easily control this band of rather naive, divided, and um, um, ramshackle regime. So there was never a feeling that the Taliban posed a threat
3: to Pakistan. The relationship between the Taliban and al-Qaeda has always been the big issue of Afghanistan. In the 1990s, in the run-up to 9-11, there were periods when the Taliban and al-Qaeda were seen as separate. And then, in part because the Taliban became increasingly isolated from the West, it became more reliant on al-Qaeda, and in particular on Osama bin Laden. Um, at the same time, there were people within the Taliban that thought that through things like cracking down on opium production, eventually people would accept that they were the, if you like, legitimate rulers of Afghanistan.
5: There were always suspicions that Pakistan harbored these close contacts with al-Qaeda. But then, you know, prior to 9-11, so did the United States which today we know was involved in doing a deal with the Taliban over an oil pipeline running through Afghanistan. So I think it's important to put all this in perspective.
3: Now, having said that, within Afghanistan, the Taliban were becoming increasingly authoritarian and working out their rules of what their very strict interpretation of Islam, what that society should look like. And so, you know, each month they'd ban more and more popular pursuits. So banning kite flying, which was a popular Afghan pastime, clearly they were becoming more and more unpopular. So I don't think, I think it's impossible to imagine that they, they would have imploded in time as they became increasingly austere. And the support that they had with the population in Afghanistan, it came because the Taliban were delivering the population, if you like, out of chaos and anarchy, then once you, get, once you get to that certain level where you, know, you are more secure, then you start demanding something else and instead the Taliban were taking away more and more. There was a strong sense in the
1: Bush administration that particularly in the first administration as opposed to the second that the Defence Department was all-powerful. Certainly in comparison with the State Department and with other parts of the US government, Our Vice President Cheney came from Defence... Uh, had worked for Deputy Secretary Rumsfeld earlier on in his career, and so there was a strong link between the leadership of the Defence Department and the Vice President's Office. Very, very strong character there also. And so that ideology really drove or was perceived to drive a lot of the the policy coming out of the United States, particularly in the first administration. That all changed very much when the personalities
0: moved around. Made it uh, easier if they had responded, but they had other priorities. They had a particular mentality on this. They were the superpower and they went their way very powerfully.
3: I think if you take the story back to the way the invasion was done, I mean, the whole point was this light touch. So it was done using the Northern Alliance, which was lacking a figurehead or leader um, following the death of Akhmetra Massoud um, with a lot of air power. And it was done very easily. You know, the Taliban quickly wilted away um, or were routed.
1: I think that if the United States hadn't been distracted by Iraq, there would have been a lot more money, resources,
5: attention uh, and boots on Afghanistan. Domestically, there was Huge and intense opposition to Pakistan's involvement in this war on terror, with many Pakistanis feeling that Pakistan had been drawn into a war that was not of its making.
3: The problem was that then there was, you know, a pause. That this early period when there was a big public support for the overthrowing of the Taliban who had been becoming increasingly unpopular. Within Afghanistan, the West didn't take advantage of that, that there were some wasted years, um, and then the Taliban returned with a with a slightly uh, nuanced message from how they'd been before, saying that they were you know opposed to corruption, opposed to bad governance and so forth, and that did have a resonance.
1: So I think if the United States hadn't been distracted by Iraq, there would have been many more resources and much more tension focused on Afghanistan. That would have created a different picture today. Al-Qaeda had nothing to do with that.
4: Osama bin Laden had nothing to do with that. The antagonism and anger at Iran and at Saddam Hussein attacking Kuwait and the military engagement of the United States in the region, I think all that would have happened
1: anyway whether we would have had Osama bin Laden or not. There are many in the United States, many think tankers, many academics in the United States who say that President Bush wanted to go into Iraq. He was just trying to find an excuse. The excuse ended up being WMD. And, of course, later they were found to be no WMD. Do I think that maybe if it hadn't been al-Qaeda, it hadn't been 9-11, there would have been another reason? Possibly, but I can't make that call. But there really is a sense by many in the United States that that was something that President Bush very much wanted
0: to do. The Americans wanted to strike at Saddam Hussein, whether 9-11 had happened or not. What 9-11 did was to make the political possibility of organising an attack on Iraq more of a realistic proposition than it would otherwise have been.
4: There was always the excuse, if you like, for the United States and its allies that there was Islamic extremism in the region, led by Iran and by other forces.
0: I think that President Bush would have found it very difficult to get any international support for a direct uh, and unjustified uh, attack on Iraq now. Lots of people would dispute the, the fact that even 9-11 justified it, uh, but there were resolutions that had been transgressed against and, and there is a, a legal basis that's been set out.
1: 9-11 ended up just being a hook to allow it, um, but we don't know the logic behind that. I mean, President Bush has never said that that's the case, but that's certainly the debate that has taken place.
0: What happened on Iraq was not regarded as fully legitimate by people around the world with their political opinion. Um, but enough Americans, including Congress, you know, were affected by 9-11, and enough allies, including the UK, because Tony Blair believed that 9-11 imposed obligations on allies to support the United States... Uh, for Iraq, the invasion, to become a political possibility in both countries. Uh, And congressional and parliamentary votes were passed in Washington and London, respectively. Uh, And they would not have been possible, in my view, without the fact of an attack on America by people who might or might not have been connected with Iraq.
1: I think most... Uh, watchers of the region say that there was a seven-year gap where the United States and the international community did lose attention, did lose resources. You look at the amount of resources that were thrown into Iraq compared to Afghanistan, and there's a huge disparity there for a number of years. And so I think that we don't know what Afghanistan would look like today, but you can say that if there were more resources, more attention put in Afghanistan, then the situation would be further ahead than it is today.
3: The military side of it in recent years was necessitated by you know, diplomatic, if you like, failures in those early years. Um, and also obviously by the, the fact that there was a lot of political focus on invading Iraq, that that seemed to be the lesson that was taken away from the ousting of the Taliban, was the ease with which you could overthrow um, abhorrent regimes rather than how you actually build the country up afterwards. I think such as they were, there was a lot of focus on, you know, building up the centralised system of government within Kabul. So if you like, I mean, to take a kind of glib example, you're building up a ministry of justice without actually making sure that you had the prisons built, or judges capable of dispensing judges at the local area where justice needs to be dispensed. And I think you can apply that to quite a lot of sectors, that it was building up The capacity of the central government without actually the central government having anything to need capacity over.
1: Pakistan arguably is at the bottom of its oscillation. We hope it's at the bottom of its oscillation. And the bilateral relationship, we hope, is at the bottom of this oscillation. I think it is worthwhile thinking in those terms. People get very worried that Pakistan is falling off the edge, that it is a failed state. I personally don't believe that that's an accurate representation.
5: There's no doubt that since 9-11, since the deepening of Islamist radicalism in Pakistan and since the the deepening of anti-Americanism and hostility to the West, Al-Qaeda has certainly come to see Pakistan as ripe for some kind of Islamist revolution.
3: There'd been a recognition that you need to focus more on governance, service delivery, you know, and recognition that its hearts and minds are lost at the local level. It's not dependent on what happens within within Kabul, but that focus came, you know, five years later than it needed to. And so, on the civilian side, the issues of development, governance, and so forth, you know, you do have a problem in a country which has been at war for thirty odd years, and the fact that there's a very high literacy, and you can't, to give one example, you know, if you're Looking at a public works department and you have some engineers, if half of them are illiterate, which they often are in a lot of um, provinces of Afghanistan, everything takes a lot longer than it would do. You can't say, go home, read the manual on how to build a bridge. You know, first off, you've got to teach them to read or show them how to do it. Um, and the same applies in the army and the police. Everything takes longer. So this recognition was long overdue, but then it started to be introduced at a time when there were security concerns. So what could have been done much more easily at the time when the Taliban had wilted away and there was no public support actually started at a time when the Taliban was coming back, and its message that foreign troops are there to you know, colonise Afghanistan or whatever had more salience than it would have done in two thousand and two, three, four. So that recognition then led to the surge, which was meant to create the space to enable the governance to increase. And clearly at times it's been successful, that when there's lots of troops, the Taliban aren't there, and then you can start doing things. The problem is that it happening, you know, eight, nine years after the initial invasion, when the Taliban have started reappearing in districts, over time there are less people willing to put their hands up and volunteer to go and work in the local public works department if they think then that the foreign troops are going to leave and the Taliban are going to come back and target what they would describe as collaborators. (laughs)
5: Organizations like Al Qaeda are probably misreading the situation in Pakistan. Because while it is true that there are, in fact, large waves of so called Islamist radicalism, the point about Pakistan is that it is also a very divided society in ethnic terms and in linguistic terms, which has made it much less. Prone to mount an Islamist revolution of the kind that perhaps Al Qaeda has in mind. It's also a society that has undergone huge changes. I mean, Pakistan today, despite a very strong uh, rural-based economy. It has become an urban society, and that, of course, brings all sorts of differentiation uh, in the way people approach problems, unlike, for example, a more simple tribal society of the kind that you find in Afghanistan.
3: It's not a political player, it's a social player. The Taliban are setting down a set of rules that um, represent a combination of a radical interpretation of Islam and a very strict, austere way of living which predominates in Pashtun areas of Afghanistan. And whatever system of government you have, people are still going to live by those social rules. So where it comes into conflict is on issues such as, for instance, girls' education. Now, there's something that when they have talks, who knows what the Taliban will say. And You know, you've had occasional statements saying, no, we don't object, and at the same time you've had girls' schools being blown up. So if you like the point of dispute isn't on the political system of government it's on how people live their lives because that's what the taliban is about it only needed the government to ensure a social way of working not to look after the economy of afghanistan it's not interested in that yeah. now that was certainly the case in the 90s how the taliban sees itself now frankly we don't really know until these talks start but it seems to me that the lines in the sand that people talk about are going to be much more on social issues rather than on the actual system of government.
5: There are complex links, and amongst many Pakistanis, the view is that Pakistan was unfairly tarnished and that to this day it has been saddled with a reputation that it does not deserve.
3: In essence, people are shooting because that's what they do. The Taliban are fighting Western troops because Western troops are in Afghanistan and the Western troops are fighting the Taliban because the Taliban are fighting them. That that early debate about, you know, creating a nation or, or, you know, we're here for women's rights, that discourse, if you like, has completely disappeared from Western justifications as to why we're in Afghanistan. It's much more about keeping the Taliban out for the sake of keeping them out. When you have people within Afghanistan's parliament whose views are almost exactly synonymous with those of the Taliban.
0: to the American people and to the world. that The United States has conducted an operation that killed Osama bin Laden, the leader of al-Qaeda, and a terrorist who's responsible for the murder of thousands of innocent men, women, and children.
1: I don't think the death of Osama bin Laden is the end point. He was a figurehead. He was of strategic importance to al-Qaeda. He held the organization together. I mean, you have to remember that al-Qaeda is effectively a franchise operation. And he was able, through the power of his uh, personality, perhaps, uh, to bring the parties together.
4: Al-Qaeda is not finished in terms of the terrorist threat that it still poses.
0: We will be relentless in defense of our citizens and our friends and allies. We will be true the values that make us who we are. And on nights like this one, we can say to those families who have lost loved ones to al-Qaeda's terror, justice has been done.
4: In terms of an organization that has the power to appeal, to generate support, I think it is greatly undermined.
1: Now, without him... It is quite possible that what is left of Al-Qaeda will break apart. Uh, So I think his death is clearly important. But to me, that's not the the end of the chapter, if you will.
4: Terrorism, in the name of Al-Qaeda, is still with us. Um, But as an organisation, in terms of its capability, in terms of its structure and its finances and so on, it has been weakened, but it still remains a threat because all you need to have is one act of terrorism, in a sense, to help revive it to some extent in the eyes of the few followers that it does have.
1: If the beginning of the chapter is 9-11, the end of the chapter is the Arab Spring. <laughs> where a number of Muslim youth came out and said a couple of things. A, there are ways of achieving our objectives, but not through violence. It's been mostly peaceful, at least on the part of the the youth, maybe not on the part of the, the government response in a number of countries. So the first message has been, there are other ways, and the second message has been, We actually hold dear many of the same values that the West does. Liberty, freedom. We hold those dear. And so it is essentially uh, also shown that there are other visions for the Muslim world, uh, for the Islamic world, and I think that's another very, very important message. And so I think to me, uh, we don't know where the Arab Spring is going to end, but its start is a marker, if you will, or the end of that chapter.
4: the ideology of Al-Qaeda has lost and that ideological mission is key to its very existence and its very struggle it can continue to carry out acts of terrorism but essentially it's been marginalized and that marginalization has increased with the success of Those that brought down the Mubarak regime and the regime in Tunisia and perhaps changes that we will see elsewhere in the Middle East through non-violent means. But I think also the undermining of al-Qaeda's ideology happened even before that. And it happened because the masses, if you like, in Muslim-majority countries didn't rally to an ideology of violence in the name of their religion. are not ever going to be quite the same and even if you're going to have religious extremism of sorts in one way or another in Egypt expressing itself or perhaps sectarianism expressing itself elsewhere in the region al-Qaeda as we know it with its ideology of focusing on the United States and um, uh, focusing on the enemy not only within but the enemy abroad I think that kind of era and that kind of thinking is over.
0: No, it isn't finished. Ten years is too short for a massive global event to have its ripples fully die out. Uh, We're still worrying about the Balkans 16 years on from Dayton. We haven't fully seen the end to the effect of the fall of the Soviet Union. We, in some ways, are still living out the aftermath of the two world wars in the 20th century uh, and the reforming of Europe. So things take several generations to die away when they've been that big. Uh, people remember them and people are affected by them. People think what could have happened otherwise and world events take a different course and things happen. So we will still go on talking about 9-11 as a, a seminal event at the 20-year mark, you know.